uh, Windsor Road Church, thank you so much for your uh, very generous and kind hospitality and the chance to be here with you this weekend. Uh, I have been blessed um, by your uh, warm welcome of me and the opportunity to be here with you. Um, I want to talk today about, uh, from the book of Lamentations and the book of Jeremiah, to talk about what it means to introduce this discipline into our, into our world, uh, into our Christian context, so that we might be more effective witnesses in the culture around us. Um, I turn 50 years old this year, terrified about this landmark, uh, because uh, when I turned 40, I had made a resolution, and I, every year I kind of renewed it, whether it was on New Year's or whether it was uh, on my birthday, uh, that at 40, I would uh, really take seriously uh, the desire to get, lose a little bit of weight, get a little more fit. I know none of you have ever had that uh, desire, to, just, a little, uh, just to get a little more fit. And so now as I'm turning uh, 50, I have decided I'm going to be a lot more serious about this. And so like a good academic researcher, uh, I went out and I did some research on what is the most uh, best and most popular way right now to get fit. Uh, and I went to the academic researcher's best tool, Google, and I went online and I asked, uh, what is the best way to get fit in American society? Now, turns out this is a program called CrossFit. I don't know how many of you have heard of this. CrossFit P96. Uh, and what I really liked about this program is the basic philosophy behind CrossFit. It's a philosophy called muscle confusion, uh, which is great because that's been my approach to exercise my entire life. <laughs> Uh, and the way I've applied it is I just don't go to the gym for several months. And then when we go to the gym, my muscles are really confused why we're there. And that's the way I've applied muscle confusion. Uh, now, what I realized is I was thinking through that sometimes fitness and health might require a little bit of confusion, disruption, dis-ease. And that if that's true of our physical health and well-being, that it's okay to feel a little bit of that disruption and disease, could that also be true for our spiritual lives? That sometimes in our spiritual lives, it's not necessarily a bad thing to feel a little bit of disruption, dis-ease, and confusion. In fact, for many of us, that's maybe the way to grow. Because as Richard Sennett, who's a professor of, uh, uh, of sociology, says, without a disturbed sense of ourselves, without that sense of disruption and challenge, why would any of us want to grow? We would instead kind of passively stay uh, exactly where we are. But some of that disruption is necessary for us to grow. Uh, it's one of the reasons I wrote a, a book on lamentations. Um, I spent five years on this book. My wife said, you're going to sell four copies, uh, one copy for every year that you worked on this book, because nobody wants a book on lamentations. Why did you write a book on lamentations? Romans, Ephesians could have been a bestseller, but lamentations, you're going to sell about four copies. But one of the reasons was that I realized that there was this absence of disruption in American Christian culture that we don't like to deal with disruption. We don't like to deal with challenges, and we move too quickly towards the status quo when actually that disruption might be something that is necessary. And so what lament does, the discipline of lament that I want to uh, uh, talk about a little bit more, the discipline of lament leads us to that place of disruption, necessary disruption. 
What I noted in my research is that the discipline of lament or lament psalms or praise of, uh, or, or uh, songs of lament is conspicuously ap absent in American society. For example, Denise Hopkins, who's an Old Testament professor, uh, noted that if you look at the liturgical traditions in America, this would be the Lutherans, the Catholics, the Episcopalians, etc., those who are guided by a particular book that says, preach on this passage, uh, sing this hymn, or read this psalm. Turns out that in the liturgical traditions, even when they get to psalms of lament, they would skip over it and replace it with a happier psalm. When there was a hymn about lament, they would skip over it and replace that with a happier hymn. So even in the liturgical traditions where you have direct guidelines on making sure lament is a part of your church life, there was an intentionality of skipping or dropping laments from the life of the church. There was another study done by Glenn Pemberton, and he was looking at Baptist and Presbyterian hymnals. And what he noted is that in the Old Testament, in the, uh, in the book of Psalms, of the 150 psalms that we have, which reflect the worship life of Israel, what we find is that 60% of those psalms are psalms of praise and celebration and victory and triumph. But 40% of those psalms are psalms about suffering, pain. They're about lament and struggle. So not quite 50-50, but an even distribution nonetheless. So what uh, Pemberton noted is that he went to the Baptist and Presbyterian hymnals, researched those, and found that in the Baptist and Presbyterian hymnals, 80 to 85% of those hymns were hymns of celebration and praise and victory, and only 15 to 20% of those hymns were hymns about suffering and about lament. And that's just what's in the books, not even what's typically sung on a Sunday worship service. Uh, I took that same idea and I applied it to the CCLI list. And if you know what the CCLI list is, so every time you sing a contemporary song up here, there's a little number at the bottom of, of the cover which says CCLI number. And what that number is, is it gives you the license uh, and, the, and the permission to project these contemporary worship songs. Now, I don't know if you know this, but every time you sing a song on the screen, an angel gets his wings. No, uh, something good happens, uh, which is you uh, are supposed to let CCLI know you sang that song, and you, and you send that list of songs you typically sing, and they get that list together, and they actually distribute uh, royalties for those people who have written those songs. So they actually need to keep a pretty accurate list. So every year, they publish a list of the top 100 most popular songs sung through CCLI licensing. Now, I went and I went through that list, uh, and I went through every single song title and every single song lyric, or my TA did. Uh, we went through every single song title and every single song lyric to try to find out of the top 100 most popular contemporary worship songs, how many of those are lament songs or songs about struggle and suffering. So how many of you say, just like in the Bible, 40% of those top 100 contemporary worship songs are songs about lament? Do I hear 25%? 20%, 20%, 20%, 15%, do I hear 10%? Do I hear 5%? Yeah, that's about right. Five, maybe 10, if we really stretch it out, five, maybe 10% of, of those top 100 contemporary worship songs are songs of lament. And I'm using the word lament in the most generous ways I can think of. The song starts out, I cry out. Yes, a lament song. <laughs> The rest of the song is, I cry out for joy. No, I still have to count it. There's so few of these lament songs. So what these trends tend to show us is that in the American church, we are so quick to jump 
to the triumph, the victory, the good news, and everything is okay type of mentality that we sometimes forget to stay in the suffering, the struggle, and the laments, which are an important part of the scripture. So I want us to take a look at the book of Lamentations. I know that Pastor Randy led you through this, uh, 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 a study on this book before. Uh, I want to give some of the background and some of the history behind the book of Lamentations. Uh, verse 1 says, How deserted lies the city, once so full of people. How like a widow is she who was once great among the nations. She who was queen among the provinces has now become a slave. Bitterly she weeps at night, tears are on her cheeks. Among all her lovers there is no one to comfort her. All her friends have betrayed her, they have become her enemies. After affliction and harsh labor, Judah has gone into exile. She dwells among the nations, she finds no resting place. All who pursue her have overtaken her in the midst of her distress. Now, some of you are familiar with the background of the book of Lamentations. It is written right on the heels of the destruction of the capital city of Jerusalem. Israel had once been this great nation. Under King David and King Solomon, it had attained kind of a superpower status. David was a great military leader. Solomon was a great economic leader. And under these two successive kings, you had this incredible power of Israel, this chosen nation. Now, the kings that followed after David and Solomon, unfortunately, were not as godly. They pursued idols and were disobedient to the laws of God. And so after many, many generations of disobedience, God needs to bring judgment upon the people of Israel. So first he wipes out the northern kingdom, and then he wipes out the southern part of, uh, of, uh, of, of Israel. And then the only thing left is actually the capital city of Jerusalem. And eventually the Babylonians come, lay siege to Jerusalem, and wipe out the capital city of Jerusalem. And what happens then is what we are, uh, what's described here in verse 3 of Lamentations chapter 1. Uh, the people of Israel are sent away and leave Jerusalem, are sent into exile into Babylon. Now what the Babylonians did is in order to make sure that Jerusalem and Israel would never bother them again, they left behind the women, the children, the orphans, the widows, uh, the sick, the lame, and the blind. Those were left behind, but they took the able-bodied men, the young men. Of course, that's how we encounter the story of Daniel and his friends. They took the prophets, the priests, anybody who could read or write, anybody who had leadership ability, they took those individuals and took them away into exile into Babylon. Now, if you think about it, this is like the worst case scenario imaginable. For a people who had seen themselves as God's people, all of a sudden, everything that they held as valuable, their temple is gone, their leaders are gone, their prophets have gone, everybody has been taken away into exile, and their country, this once great nation of Israel, is no more because of the devastation brought by the Babylonians. And so it is at that moment when Israel is possibly at its mo lowest moment in its history, not sure how much lower you can get than at this moment after the fall of Jerusalem. It is at that moment the people of God are faced with two choices. There are more than this, but I want to focus on these two choices. The first choice is to run away and hide because the circumstances are too difficult. The challenge of the loss of identity, the loss of home, the loss of all that has meant value, uh, of value to you, now because of the Babylonians, you've lost everything. You've been sent away into exile. And so the temptation is, we are here in exile. Our nation is no more. We are no longer the people of God. We are going to just give up. We're going to run away, hide, and give up. And with that temptation, Jeremiah speaks. Jeremiah writes, or Yahweh writes through the prophet Jeremiah, you don't have that option. This is what the Lord says to those who I sent into exile into Babylon. 
Build houses, settle down. Marry and have sons and daughters. Increase in number there, do not decrease. Verse 7, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Now think about this with me. They've lost everything. They're no longer in their promised land. They no longer have the capital of Jerusalem. They are instead in Babylon. Of all places, Babylon. Think about Las Vegas, Hollywood, New York, every evil city you can think of. Rolled into one, that's Babylon. It was a symbol of all that is wrong with the world. And the people of God are exiled into Babylon. And of the craziest things in the world to be said... Yahweh says, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Now, when you see the phrase, seek the peace, almost every other time in the Bible, you see the phrase, seek the peace of what city? Seek the peace of Jerusalem. Excellent. Yeah, that's, you see that all over the Bible. Seek the peace of Jerusalem, which makes total sense. David's city, capital of the promised land. Of course, you seek the peace of Jerusalem. But here, one of the very few exceptions, it says, seek the peace and prosperity, not of Jerusalem, but of all places, Babylon. In other words, even if you're in the worst place imaginable, even if you're in the place that is considered the worst, sinful, horrible place in the world, even then, God's people are not allowed to give up, run away, and hide. We are to seek the peace, not just of Jerusalem, but of all things, we are to seek the peace of Babylon. This is a challenge for us because sometimes we get into that flight or fight mode, right? And so sometimes it's easier to run away and hide when the world around us changes, when the culture changes, when everything around us seems to be falling apart. Our temptation is to run away and hide. Jeremiah teaches us you are not allowed to run away and hide. Now, as a historian, one of the things I look through is in churches, in the ch history of the church, where are the places where God's people didn't live up to God's command? So God says you're not allowed to run away and hide when things are challenging around you. But are there places in our history where that's exactly what we've done? And one of the things I looked at is, uh, as I teach in the area of urban ministry, is the way that many Christians ran away from the city when the cities began to change. Here's the background. John Winthrop, the first governor of Massachusetts, pulls up to the Massachusetts Bay, looks over what will become the great city of Boston, and he declares that city will become a city set on a hill. Taken from Scripture, the idea that these urban centers in the, in the United States will eventually become places where the gospel goes forth. The light of the gospel is going to go forth, and he said, I imagine a city set on a hill. Boston, the city, takes that so seriously that one of the main neighborhoods is called Beacon Hill. One of the main streets is called Beacon Street. The whole idea of a city set on a hill, the light of the gospel going forth. And that was the narrative for several centuries, in fact, the belief that these urban centers in North America are going to be places where the gospel goes forth. When that narrative changes is in the middle of the 19th into the 20th century. And a couple of factors occur in these urban centers. Up until that time, most of the residents of American cities were white Protestants. They were uh, Scottish Presbyterians. They were German Lutherans. They were Scandinavian Pietists and Lutherans. But at the end of the day, it was mostly Western and Northern European Protestants. Now, in the 19th and into the 20th century, the immigration pattern changes, and you start getting Southern and Eastern European immigrants moving into these urban centers. That includes Italian Catholics, Polish Jews, and Greek Orthodox. They now move into these urban centers. 
How many of you saw the movie Gangs of New York? Y'all remember that movie? I, I read the cover. It said, A Race War in New York City. I was like, cool. That sounds like a cool movie. So I put the movie in, and I'm watching The Race War, and it is Leonardo DiCaprio, the whitest guy in Hollywood, and Daniel Day-Lewis, the second whitest guy in Hollywood, and they're fighting each other. I was like, what is this about? Well, it's exactly what I described. The Western and Northern Europeans are threatened by the new immigrants of the Southern and Eastern Europeans, and that's one factor in how the cities began to change. The second factor was actually even more significant. It was the movement of African Americans from the southern states to the northern states. After the uh, Civil War and the Emancipation Proclamation, many African Americans obviously can't move back to the plantation and try to start their own communities in the south, in the Mississippi Delta. Many of these communities, as you know, are burnt up by the Ku Klux Klan. They come in and destroy these communities. So the African Americans have no place to go in the south. Many opt to move to the northern and east coast cities. So you have a huge influx, which we now call the Great Migration, of African Americans moving from the South to cities like Chicago, Cleveland, Detroit, Baltimore, Washington, and Philadelphia. You get the huge influx of African Americans into these urban centers in many of the Northern and East Coast cities. Now what does that do? Combined with the changes in the European immigration and the influx of the Great Migration, you start seeing a narrative change about these urban centers. The challenge of this ethnic demographic change was too much for many of the churches that were already there. And they began to become fearful of the changing neighborhood, so many of the white Protestants began to flee to the suburbs, leaving these urban centers behind and moving to the suburban communities. We now call this white flight. And it wasn't just white flight. It turned out to be white Protestant flight, as many white Protestants left the urban centers to move to the suburbs. Now, one of the reasons we know this is that we, were check, we track the money spent on new buildings during the height of white flight. So what would happen is that people would leave beautiful buildings in downtown Minneapolis, beautiful buildings in downtown Chicago, move to the suburbs, and build brand new buildings there. What happened in 1945 is that only $26 million was spent in the entire country on new church buildings. That's how much one new church building costs now in, in the current time. But back in 1945, the entire country spent $26 million on new buildings. Fifteen years later in 1960, that number shoots up to $1 billion spent on new church buildings. That's an astronomical increase. It's an exponential increase in a 15-year time period. Why? Because people were leaving urban centers with buildings already there, moving to suburban communities, and building new buildings in the 40s, 50s, 60s, even into the 1970s. Now, when these buildings were built, they had a particular form of architecture. This was the most common form of architecture of buildings built in the 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s, usually with a slanted roof and a little bit of an arch on the side. How many of you have seen buildings that look like this? Yeah, it was very common, especially in the Midwest. These buildings were most likely built in the 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s. In the late 70s, I was about 10 years old, and I attended a church dedication with a building that looked like this. And even as a 10-year-old, I knew this is a really stupid idea. I don't know whose idea this was. This is a bad idea. Why? Because I was living in a cold-weather state. It was January when the building was dedicated. Now, when your heating vents are on the floor because heat rises, what happens to all that warm air on a January day? It goes right up into the rafters, all that heat. 
So you literally have the frozen chosen on the ground and all that wonderful warm air up into the rafters. Now, of course, in order to fix that, you put ceiling fans up there to push the warm air down. And then, of course, charismatics can't wish it because they keep hitting their hands on the ceiling fans. So you end up with a form of architecture that just makes no sense. And as a 10-year-old, I knew this. I'm saying to my mind, whose stupid idea was it to build this building like this? The senior pastor gets up there and he says, it was my idea to build the church building to look like this. And he explains, he said, if you were to turn this building upside down, what would you be looking at? He said, you're looking at the bottom of a boat, a really big boat. Our church is a really big boat. It's a really big ship. And where in the Bible do you read about a really big <laughs> boat? A really big ship. Of course, Noah's Ark. Now think with me what you are saying to the world when you say you are Noah's Ark. Uh, we don't care about the world because we're safe in Noah's Ark. We don't care if the floodwaters and judgment of God comes and sweeps everybody away as long as we are safe in Noah's Ark. And on the ark, we're going to get a little bit of the world out there and just have our Christian versions of it on the safety of our ark. So if the world has secular literature, we will have our Christian literature. The world has secular magazines, we will have our Christian magazines. And if the world has secular art, we will have our Christian art. And if the world has secular music, we will have our mediocre Christian music. And we will have a Christian version of everything that is out there in the world as long as we are safe in Noah's Ark. That became what the churches were becoming in the 1970s and forward. Now, how do you do evangelism from an ark? Not really well. Not very well at all. Here's how evangelism works on the ark. Uncle Joe floats by. You love Uncle Joe. He's family. So you've got a little life preserver ready. You throw it out and you bring Uncle Joe onto the ark. And you're so thrilled. Uncle Joe, we're so glad you're here. We're so glad you floated by at the right time. Welcome to the ark. You're going to fit right in because you're one of us. You're family. Of course you're going to fit right in. But then a neighbor floats by, and you stop for a moment and say, wait a minute. He borrowed my mower last week, and he still hasn't given it back. But here's the real problem with my neighbor. On the ark, we clap one three. He's going to want to clap two four. That's going to be a real problem when we start singing on this ark. That's not going to work out. We only brought one bottle of sriracha. And he looks like he's going to eat a lot of sriracha sauce. That's not going to work out. We don't have enough sriracha sauce for this brother. So we end up saying, you know, the things that he does and the things we do on this ark, it's just not going to fit. So maybe there's an ark down the street that's more for his kind of people. And so we let him float away to find an ark somewhere else. And that, of course, has led to some of the most extreme levels of segregation in the American church, where we are segregated because our little ark is supposed to be for our kind of people the people with our culture, the people with our particular perspective and value system. That's what we want in our ark. But what that has led to is a running away and hiding rather than becoming a powerful witness in the world. Now, that was 100 years ago. That was 50 years ago. What's happening right now? What are the changes in our culture? What are the challenges that we're confronting? And what are the issues that we're dealing with that means we have to actually rise up and be God's people in the midst of these changes rather than running away and hiding? And one of the major changes is the demographic changes in our society. And a lot of it does trace back to 1965 where there were changes in the immigration laws in the United States. Now, one thing I need to make clear. There has never been a moment in American history where one year the doors were closed, and the next year you flung it open and everybody and anybody could come in. 
1965 didn't mean that in 1964 there were 200,000 immigrants, and then in 1966 there were 6 million immigrants. That has never happened in American history. The only time that happened is when the Puritans and the Pilgrims show up and the natives said, come on in. That's the only time in, in history where we've had this open immigration policy. In 1964, there was a small number of immigrants. In 1965, there was a small number of immigrants. What changed was the distribution of immigration within that small number. So it goes from 200,000 to 210,000 to 225,000. It doesn't jump to millions overnight. In fact, we're still not at a million immigrations per year, immigrants per year. We're still below that threshold. What we're dealing with is a small number of immigrants. But 1965 changes it because prior to 1965, there were pretty explicit racist laws that says we're not going to have certain types of people in our country. The first of these was called the Chinese Exclusion Act. Can somebody tell me what that might have done? Yeah, it was pretty clear. <laughs> they actually weren't hiding anything there. We don't want Chinese people, so let's make the Chinese Exclusion Act to intentionally exclude Chinese people. So that was the first, but there was a series of these that said, we don't want people from certain parts of the country and the world to come into the United States, so we will explicitly ban these individuals from coming into the United States. I'm so glad we don't do that anymore. So what we ended up with is a policy that said, we don't want certain people. 1965 says, as part of the civil rights movement, Actually, we can't discriminate like that, so we will take more immigrants from Asia, Africa, and Latin America rather than exclusively from Europe and North America. So that begins to change the immigration, but it is a slow, over 50-year influx of non-Western immigrants or non-European immigrants. Like I said, it doesn't go from 200,000 to 6 million. It goes from 200,000 to 210 and gradual increase, therefore. We've always had a quota system. We still have a quota system. If you're in the Philippines and you want to come to the United States, you put your name in on the waiting list, it takes 25 to 35 years for you to come into the United States. So we're talking about a slow process of immigration. But what that did is that when you do this over a 50-plus year period of time, you end up not only with that first generation of immigrants, but the second and the third generation of immigrants, which impacts birth rate. By 2008, we had already crossed the one-third threshold in American society, where a third of our nation were of not of European descent. But this is the big number here. Six years ago, in 2011, half the births in America were of non-European descent. That number is only going up. It's not going down. Those numbers keep going up. Half of the births in America of non-European descent. What happens in 2016 exactly five years after the birth rate changes. The incoming kindergarten class changes. Doesn't that make sense? You've got kids born here, five years later, they start kindergarten. 2016 was the first year where the incoming kindergarten class was majority non-European, non-white. That number, of course, leads to this number, 2023, when the majority of all children in America will be of non-European descent, and the number of 2042, where the majority of all people in America will be of non-European descent. What I want to point out is that this number is tied to this number, which is tied to this number, meaning the browning of America, the diversity in America, is not tied to immigration, it is tied to birth rates. So a Pew Foundation study looked at immigration patterns from Mexico. And between 2009 and 2014, during a five-year period, they studied immigration with Mexico and found that the net immigration from Mexico over that five-year time period was negative 140,000. 
We were losing immigrants to Mexico rather than this flood of immigrants from Mexico. So that's the reality of immigration. The change of American diversity is not tied to uh, immigration. It's tied to birth rates. So build the wall. No, let's get Canada to build us a dome. That's what I really want. I want a dome to seal the entire country off. Canada's got the money. We'll get them to pay for it. But guess what? That won't change these numbers one bit because the change in American population is not based upon immigration. It is based upon birth rates. In other words, this is a reality we're going to have to deal with. This is the reality we're going to have to deal with as a church because get this, the church is becoming diverse at a faster rate than American society. The church is actually 10 years ahead in terms of diversity. It's the only time the church has been ahead on anything compared to society. We're 10 years ahead on diversity. Why? Because Korean churches, Spanish-speaking congregations, African-American churches, multi-ethnic churches, that's where the real growth is. And so this reality in the church and in American society, we're not going to run away and hide from it. We're going to deal with it as the people of God. This is what we're called to as God's people. Now, what then do we do through the practice of lament? This is where Lamentations is so intriguing to me because it offers actually an interesting paradigm. The first thing has to do with who wrote the book of Lamentations. As I mentioned, the exile meant that many of the literate, the leaders, the prophets, the priests, they were all sent away into exile. There was one person who could read or write, who was a prophet, who was allowed to stay behind. It was the prophet Jeremiah. Because Jeremiah, if you read through his writings, actually says, Israel, you need to give up. Jerusalem, you need to give up to Babylon. The Babylonians saw this and said, he might be on our side. Let's let him stay behind. So probably the only candidate who could write the book of Lamentations, because it's clearly written by someone who was literate, uh, was probably Jeremiah. Because all the others were sent away into exile. Jeremiah probably was the only candidate to write the book of Lamentations. But here's the problem. If you read Jeremiah... And the writing style of Jeremiah in the Hebrew, and compare that to Lamentations and the writing style of Lamentations, it sounds like two radically different people. The writing style is different. The vocabulary is different. It just sounds like two different people wrote Jeremiah versus the book of Lamentations. The way I describe it, it's like Shakespeare and Tupac. Now, both are great poets, probably not the same person. Just a guess. Shakespeare and Tupac probably have slightly different writing styles, probably not the same person. So what we're seeing is Jeremiah Lamentations with this very stark difference in writing style. So what's the answer? It probably was Jeremiah who wrote down the book of Lamentations, but it wasn't his voice that he is reflecting. In fact, what happens is after the fall of Jerusalem, he goes to the uh, city gate, which is the town square of its time. And all those who've suffered under the siege and under the exile, those who have really been damaged the most, the widows, the orphans, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, they start showing up at the city gate, and they all start telling their stories. And Jeremiah, who is the literate one, can write down these stories. So Jeremiah is not speaking his own experience. He's actually telling the stories of the most hurting and, 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 and damaged and suffering in his society. Those are the stories that he's telling. I argue that Lamentations might be the most feminine book of the Bible, uh, even more so than Esther and Ruth, because you're getting the stories of the persecuted women, the suffering women. Those are the stories that emerge in the book of Lamentations. So what Jeremiah does is not raise his privileged, powerful voice. 
in fact, uses his privilege and power in order to elevate the very least of these, his brothers and his sisters. That's the power of lament. That's the power of lamentations that the privileged and powerful voice of Jeremiah is actually silenced throughout the book of Lamentations in order for the suffering women, the suffering children, the broken, the crippled, the lame and the blind, their voices may rise up. And if I can say something about lament and how we work in a much more diverse society, it is how can we elevate the voices of the oppressed? How can we elevate and speak and, 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 and try to, to, to raise up the voices of the suffering, especially as they lament? Close with this illustration. Uh, Walter Brueggemann uh, is one of my favorite authors, and he writes about the difference between those who have good things and who do not have good things. And he uses the celebration difference with the suffering uh, 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 theology. And, and you can look this up, but I want to just give you an illustration that might clarify the difference between a theology of celebration of the haves and a theology of suffering of the have-nots. Uh, imagine, if you will, the richest neighborhood in this area. Picture that for a moment. It's probably a gated community, but somehow we get through the gate and we sneak into that neighborhood. And we go and look for the largest house in that neighborhood. It's a beautiful mansion. And you knock on the front door and a 16-year-old girl answers the door. And so you ask her, uh, we're taking a survey of this neighborhood and we want to find out what you think heaven is going to be like. And she's going to say, oh, heaven's going to be awesome. It's going to be fantastic. Describe it for us. Well, here on earth, my parents uh, got me a Dell desktop. But when I get to heaven, I'm getting a Mac Airbook. That's what I'm getting when I get to heaven. Uh, here on earth, they got me a little dinky TV set that they put in my room. But when I get to heaven, I'm getting an 85-inch full plasma screen with surround sound and satellite hookup. That's what I'm getting when I get to heaven. Uh, for my 16th birthday, they gave me a Toyota Yaris. But when I get to heaven, I'm going to be tooling around in a Lamborghini or a Ferrari. So for the 16-year-old who already has so many good things, her version of heaven is more of the good things she already has. But let's take that same question and go to a very different part of the world. Let's go to Puerto Rico now in the midst of uh, the catastrophe, uh, Caribbean islands with the flooding and the devastation in the Caribbean islands, or Haiti after the earthquake a few years ago, or maybe to uh, Darfur, Sudan uh, in the midst of the civil war a few years ago, or, or right now in the, the country of Lebanon where so many displaced individuals have, and refugees have moved from Syria into Lebanon, and let's go to a refugee camp and start talking not to a 16-year-old in the richest neighborhood in the United States, but a 16-year-old in a refugee camp in Lebanon. And let's ask them, what do you think heaven is going to be like? I guarantee you she'll give you a radically different set of answers. She'll say, heaven is nothing like the world I'm living in right now. Heaven is a place where my parents have not been killed by rebel warriors. Heaven is a place where I'm not worried about getting raped every night of my life. Heaven is a place where I don't have to walk miles and miles for clean water and water that's not even clean. Heaven is a place I don't have to worry about my daily bread. Heaven is nothing like the world I'm living in right now. Now in our worldview, we think, hey, the person with all those good things should go over there and dump their resources in a shoebox onto the people who are over there, and wouldn't it be great for that poor person to get all the benefits of the rich person? But actually, if you really want to know what heaven is like, you've got to hear both of their voices, because they each have a slice of it. They don't have the full picture, 
But together you get the picture of heaven. Of course heaven will be many of the good things on earth and we're going to see amazing versions of it. Of course our families will be there and those are loved ones who followed, who chose to follow Jesus. Of course they're going to be there. And maybe this is theologically controversial, but I said this to my kids, of course your pet dog will be there in heaven. So those are the things we say, of course the things on earth there will be versions of in heaven. But that's an incomplete picture of heaven. Because heaven also will be like nothing we've ever seen before. It will be a world that is completely beyond our imagination. And in fact, you don't get a picture of heaven until you talk to both individuals. That's when we realize my gospel here is incomplete. I need you to teach me what it means to be a true follower of Jesus. My understanding of Jesus is incomplete because here I talk about resurrection and victory and triumph and the empty grave and Jesus coming back. But here you understand the crucifixion in ways that I can never understand over there. So my understanding of Jesus needs both the theology of celebration and the theology of suffering. And that's where my challenge will be for this congregation. Where are the places where you are hearing the other story? Where are the places where you are receiving the teaching and the, and the blessings of other stories that are different from yours, and out of that you are getting a much more a profound and deeper picture of the gospel message? I'll close with this story. I go to a lot of conferences. I get, I, that's part of our income for our family to speak at a lot of different conferences. Uh, the truth is that oftentimes I get, a, I get a, a little bit tired of going to these conferences because I'm oftentimes the only person of color speaking at these conferences. Uh, many of these conferences will have um, a young white male, perpetually 29. Doesn't matter if he's 50 years old. He's always 29 years old. He's got hip glasses, very nice facial hair, skinny jeans. You, got, you name it, he's got it. And he gets up there and he talks about how he grew his church and how wonderful it is to be a pastor. And it's, it's this inspirational message. And I'm like, wow, that's amazing. And then I realized, but that's not really what church life is oftentimes about. There's triumph and victory and success all the time. And so people come to me because I've been a church planner and I've teach at a seminary. So what does it mean to be a, uh, a successful pastor in American society? And I'll say, well, stop coming to these conferences because you're spending $300 for airfare, $300 for registration, $300 for, for the two nights at the, at the hotel, and you, all of that money to learn nothing new from a 29-year-old who's actually 45 years old. You're learning nothing new. They'll say, in order to be a good leader, you need to be a servant. Duh, read the Bible. Uh, in order to be an evangelist, you need to be welcoming to newcomers. Duh, you didn't, you didn't have to pay $1,000 to learn that. So what I say is usually, you know what? Here's the secret to ministry in the church in the 21st century. A praying spouse and a praying mom. The rest of the stuff you'll be able to figure out. But you can't have ministry without a praying spouse and a praying mom. Thankfully and gratefully, I've been, able to, I've been blessed by both. I'll tell you my mom's story. My mom was an immigrant. She was a single parent. She raised us in the best capacity that she could. We grew up in a rough neighborhood in inner city Baltimore because that was the only place we could afford to live. Remember cockroaches infesting our home and gang fights breaking out in our neighborhood. That was the norm that I grew up in in inner city Baltimore, but it was the only place we could afford to live. Now, my mom would work long hours at work. She worked 12 hours at a carryout in inner city Baltimore, uh, making sandwiches and subs for the community, and then she would go to a night shift working at a nursing home. And so she would come home, make breakfast for the kids, send us off, and then sleep two hours and go back to work again. That was the life that she lived. But here's something amazing about my mom. Every Sunday, she took the day to serve the Lord. 
She would make sure that there was no work she did on Sunday except she would go to church and serve the people of the community at, at, at church. She would take us along with her. And over the years, she demonstrated to my family, even though we were a poor family growing up in an inner city neighborhood, she repeatedly demonstrated this is what it means to be a faithful follower of Jesus. She isn't a hotshot 29-year-old pastor. Her clothing is not going to make everybody stand up and say, that's really cool. But she has something that everybody should know about. A few years ago, she's now in her 80s, uh, she showed me the condition of her knees. And her kneecaps had uh, cracked open into five different pieces. So um, if you see her knee, she doesn't have one kneecap, she has five. And she showed me how this happened. Because she has spent 30 years of her life kneeling before God in prayer on the hard floor. And after that, if you're praying an hour a day on the hard floor, your, your knees can't take that. So her kneecaps cracked open. So right now when she kneels to pray, her kneecaps conform to the shape of the floor. And I think that's what it means to hear the stories of suffering. Not to hear yet again the newest hotshot pastor who's got all the right answers, who's got all the hipster stories, but it's the stories of the 85-year-old grandmother who prays on her knees every day for her grandchildren, who's been praying for me and my sisters every day for decades and decades now. You need to know that every single member of my family is in some kind of Christian ministry uh, after all these years. Even without a father in our home, our mother's prayers for decades and those broken knees is why I can stand in front of you today. Those are the stories we need to hear. Those are the stories that are transforming the world. These are the stories of lament that we must not exclude and say this is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Not just the victorious and triumphant stories, but the stories of a grandmother on her knees praying every day for the broken and lost in our society and those in her family as well.